The U.S. Arab Radio Network is proud to offer the Ray Hanania Show with veteran journalist Ray Hanania, the U.S. correspondent for the Arab News newspaper. U.S. Arab Radio broadcast content Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. on WNZK AM 690 in Detroit, WDMV 700 in Washington, D.C., and simulcast through stations around the country. Programs will rerun from 5 till 6 p.m. Visit us on Facebook at U.S. Arab Radio. And we're also streaming live on Facebook.com forward slash Arab News. And good morning, everybody. This is Ray Hanania here at the Ray Hanania Show on WNZK AM 690 Radio in Greater Detroit and WDMV AM 700 Radio in Washington, D.C. We're streaming live on the U.S. Arab Radio Network at ArabRadio.us and live at Arab News, Facebook.com slash Arab News. I'm Ray Hanania, and we got a great show this morning. In segment one, we're going to look at the uh, uh, campaign and candidacy of Arab American political empowerment and civil rights attorney Tahani Abusi. Um, she ran for Manhattan District Attorney General in New York. Though she did not win, she ran an impressive campaign and came in third place, I believe, and I call that the equivalent of winning the bronze medal, which is a huge achievement at the Tokyo Olympics. Later on at segment two at the bottom of the hour, we're going to talk with Paul Salem of the Middle East Institute about the political turmoil in Lebanon. What's causing it? Why hasn't anything been done a year after the massive explosion at a warehouse at Beirut's port that took the lives of nearly 214 people? There are still no repairs, no answers. Uh, it's just a mess. So we're going to look at that. But uh, we're going to take a quick break here at uh, the Ray Hanania Radio Show. And when we come back, we're going to talk with Tanya Busi, uh, someone who I think is a star in the Arab American community when it comes to politics. She's done a lot, and we're going to help introduce her to Detroit, Washington, D.C., and the rest of the country. I'm Ray Hanania. We're going to be right back right after these messages. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. At Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic in Dearborn, we provide effective physical therapy sessions in order to limit pain and discomfort. Top Rehab provides physical therapy care for any diagnosis prescribed by a physician, and we regularly see and treat conditions such as stroke, TMJ, fibromyalgia, sciatica, joint pain, and more. We use a variety of pain management methods, including modalities, soft tissue mobilization, and therapeutic exercise. If you're in need of physical rehabilitation or physical physical therapy, get the highest quality health care at Top Rehab. Most insurance is accepted and we're open Monday, Wednesday and Friday 8 to 6, Tuesday and Thursday 8 to 5, and Saturday 10 till 2. Call for an appointment today at 313-846-0555. That's 313-846-0555. Choose Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic on Michigan Avenue in Dearborn. Life's too short to be in pain. 
Enjoy the first Syrian-style cuisine in Michigan. At Damas Cuisine and Catering, you'll find a wide selection of Syrian foods and sweets in our menu, like frike, hoisi, grape leaves with steak, mashawi platter, hot mahashi, char-grilled kebab, shawarma, and much more. Get super-fast delivery from Damas Cuisine and Catering right to your door. Order online at damascuisine.com forward slash menu and track your order live. Damas Cuisine and Catering. 28841 Orchard Lake Road in Farmington Hills. Call 248-987-4985. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination? A COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The U.S. Arab Radio Network is proud to offer the Ray Hanania Show with veteran journalist Ray Hanania, the U.S. correspondent for the Arab News newspaper. U.S. Arab Radio broadcast content Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. on WNZK AM 690 in Detroit, WDMV 700 in Washington, D.C., and simulcast through stations around the country. Programs will rerun from 5 till 6 p.m. Visit us on Facebook at U.S. Arab Radio. And we're also streaming live on Facebook.com forward slash Arab News. Of course, I've been in politics all my life as a journalist covering Chicago politics and uh, Midwest politics. Ah, there we go. We got rid of that little buzz there. But uh, so politics is always in my blood and uh, it's always been exciting as an Arab American, a Palestinian uh, American to see other Arab Americans get into politics and over the past 45 years it's been a slow rise but I'll tell you recently we've some seen some real talent um, going for some big offices and my guest uh, who is on the line with me is a and on zoom with us by the way live on Facebook on Arab News with 5.6 million viewers I'm sure every one of them is watching right now so don't be nervous Tahani Tahani Abushi is a Palestinian American civil rights lawyer and partner at the Abushi law firm in New York City with two of her siblings she's a she was a Democratic candidate for Manhattan District Attorney in June 2021 and did great, I think. Tahani, thank you so much for joining us on radio. Of course. Thank you so much for having me, Ray. Yeah, I mean, why does anybody get involved in politics? It's such a mess. They call you names. They attack you. (laughs) Nothing that any politician ever does satisfies anyone. Half the population of a place is upset with you. Why would you want to do that? Because whether you like it or not, when you sit it out, decisions are made on your behalf and you're not at the table. Your voice is not heard. And I think there's there's always value and benefit in 
making sure that you are at the table. Just like you said, you've been doing this for 45 years and it's a slow rise, but there's a rise. Um, and I think that Arab Americans need to have their voices heard much louder and that we're impacted by these policies. So we should make sure that we're part of shaping that conversations to create policies that are actually going to work for all of our families. Well, we saw this uh, week, actually last night, where uh, an Arab American actually is now in the running for mayor of Dearborn, which is uh, a pretty cool thing. I think it's uh, State Representative Abdullah Hamoud. Um, and we had him on the show in the fall. What a smart guy. And that's the nice thing about politics, uh, at least for the Arab American community. We don't always win, but we have such great talent. I mean, he's phenomenal. You're phenomenal. When I go through your resume and everything, it's just impressive. And I'm thinking if my parents were looking at me as a very successful lawyer, they'd say, stay out of politics. Go and make money. Be a doctor, Tahani. Didn't that tell you be a doctor, an engineer? How'd you end up being a lawyer? You know, I uh, my father really encouraged us to just do as much as we can. And two of my older siblings went to law school first. Two of my siblings are doctors, so they took that burden off of me, um, allowed me to, to be a lawyer. And, you know, I took a lot of notes from my parents. Our community um, is very family oriented, um, is into helping people. My parents always helped a lot of people. And I just wanted to be a voice that knew how to get things done uh, in a meaningful way. And I'm very into policy changes. And I felt like the law allowed me to do that, to really challenge some of the rules that I think didn't work for people, to make sure that we protect our civil liberties, our constitutional rights, um, uh, and be a force for unification among people. And that's why I got into the law and that's why I do civil rights work uh, specifically. I think it's really important um, to make sure that we balance the scales of justice and that people's voices are heard and protected. Yeah, and it's especially important now. Obviously, we're coming around to the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. Um, geez, I'm in Chicago, and I had people coming up to me after September 11th saying, why did my people do this? Uh, like, I'm guilty. I can't even imagine what it was like to be Arab American in New York City at that time. Um, people were angry at us. Uh, when someone commits suicide, they're gone. You can't punish them. So they look around. The public looks around for anybody that looks as close to the person that they're angry with as possible, and that's you and me. And I don't know, what was it like after September 11th for you? That, and we're talking 20 years ago. Well, I was in high school at the time. I think um, wow. it was uh, horrible. It was traumatic. It was a tragedy for me to see my country in turmoil like that, but then couldn't even mourn it the way you would want to and be afraid the way you'd want to because of those personal attacks, the stereotypes. We had um, a lot of horrible policies come out of that moment. Um, that targeted Muslims, uh, targeted Arabs, people who appear to be Muslim or Arab. Um, and it was an attempt, I feel like, to kind of push us into the shadows of society. But we're here um, and we're part of this country and part of building a very strong fabric of this country. And the Muslim community pushed back, our allies pushed back, uh, and we ensured that um, we weren't pushed into the sh shadows of society or scapegoated um, for the wrongdoing of a handful of people. Yeah, and you know, they, they happen to be Arab, but they don't represent us. I, I didn't know those people. You didn't know them. I, I think it's amazing that, you know, we have done so much. You as an American, me as an American. I served during the Vietnam War. Honestly, at the time, I wasn't excited about it. 
<laughs> but today now people come up and say, what did you do? I said, hey, I served in the Vietnam War. What did you do? And they look and they, I, they didn't serve at all. And I go, come on, you're attacking me for being Arab. I'll take you right to the recruiter right now. We'll sign you up. You be as patriotic as I've been. And that usually shuts them up. But the point is that you and I are American. We do so much for this country. We love this country. We support it. And like everybody else, correct? Um, we're very proud of where we came from. And we want to share that heritage. Why are we treated differently? It just doesn't seem fair. And I think as much as we love uh, this country, we shouldn't be afraid to criticize her. We shouldn't be afraid to push for better policies. Um, this country has always been in a state of changing laws, changing rules to make sure we live in a fair, equal, just, equitable society. Uh, and that means looking at things we're not doing right and making sure we can do them right and do things better. Yeah, I listen, I think that criticism of our government is so important criticism of any government you could do that I, I think it's part of what makes democracy so important right. and another aspect is running for office and you know knowing how tough it is uh, what pushed you to cross the line had you run before uh, no, for public I've, office this is your I've first never time run before it was my first time i'm pretty involved in local politics um in my city for me as a civil rights attorney i see the impact of these policies firsthand whether it's police accountability police brutality um discrimination racism uh, issues with immigration i mean this these are issues that i've always said on the campaign were our kitchen table conversations stories that are shared by thousands of families in new york city and i wanted to bridge the gap between politicians or people who run for office that have never walked in our shoes uh, and the community that deals with their decision making on a daily basis um, and I think it was the right time. It was the right time for criminal justice reform. It was the right time on the heels of the George Floyd protest where uh, we can now talk about police accountability in a meaningful way. And I think it was important because a lot of people were feeling the frustrations on top of that with the impact of COVID. Why aren't we prepared? Why aren't we ready for something like this? And it pushed all of our systems into overdrive and efficiency. So the conversations about, well, this agency or organization is just too big to do something about. Well, COVID is telling you now you have to do something about it and do something about it structurally. And it allowed us to examine the criminal justice system, how our courts operate, how our police operate, um, how integration and preventative measures uh, are working or not working, and then actually propose policies to do them better. What was it like uh, as a Arab American, a Palestinian American, a Muslim running in the election i'm sure that it had to be part of the election debate and obviously sometimes it 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 always comes out in an ugly way against us um but sometimes it becomes very positive tell us your experience what was it like uh, how was it used against you was it used for you how did it uh, balance out in the election i think it was positive it was something that um was visibly something people saw first. Oh, she's Muslim, she wears hijab, um, she's Palestinian, okay, great. Um, but my story and my work is something that preceded my appearance um, for a long time. And so people knew who I, I was, who I am. Uh, people have seen my cases, have seen where I've been in the community. So everybody's like, we know Tahani. 
Um, and it would be great to have something different. Every single Manhattan district attorney has been a white male since the beginning of its time. And um, out of eight candidates, um, the three people of color took the top three spots. I think that's something that's quite telling about what a place like Manhattan is ready for, not only policy, but somebody that comes from a di different background. And that's why I think what you did was so significant. I mean, I, you ran third, I believe, and, uh, and I thought you did very well. Um, and I thought that a lot of people supported you, although I, I think we could have probably done more to help you. Um, but it's not, it, it's such a tough issue because there's so many issues. Some voters can't get past the fact of who we are to deal with the, you know, the issues. How did you address that? We stayed focused on the issue at hand, um, my personal experience, my work on the ground. I think for me, the race was tough in part because we did have uh, essentially a billionaire in the race right. who uh, had all the money in the world to spare. And I think that was difficult. Um, it was somewhat of a crowded field. So we were up against a lot, uh, but I will say we did have positive reception. I don't think... Um, at least not visibly, that that was necessarily a, a hindrance. I think it allowed for uh, really great conversations about what could be when all communities unite behind an issue and unite behind somebody that has walked in their shoes. Um, and so we've done that. We, we've changed what the face of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is going to look like, but I think we still have a lot of work to do. And there are still a lot of first times for the Arab American community first time we run for certain offices, um, whether it's the school board or Congress, Senate, district attorney, you name it. Um, and so it's also the process of getting people become familiar, familiarized with seeing people like us run for offices like these. Yeah. And, you know, being Arab American uh, and being American, I, you know, we're seeing more and more Arab candidates run for office. And the question comes up, do I the candidate just because they're Arab American and when I don't some people say why didn't you support that candidate and I think it comes down to some to the issues and I think we have right. to be part of that debate and I thought you brought up the issues really well what was the most important issue and I mean I don't want to t say it but I mean what was the most important issue and how did you address it that resonated with the voters in Manhattan which, by the way, running for Manhattan District Attorney is a huge, you know, endeavor. It's a great office. And most of us have learned about that office through that TV series, Billions. Okay, that's where we hear about the Manhattan DA. You have an Arab woman on that show. Okay, so uh, even though you don't want, I hope they slate you for that because you deserve it. But what was the one issue that you felt resonated with voters um, or could have resonated more? I think one one major issue was police accountability. Um, a lot of people were frustrated with everything from the concern around crime um, to lack of preventative measures to lack of measures that actually address the underlying issue. And this is an agency with billion dollars with um, over 30,000 members 
And so it wasn't a matter of lack of resources. It was a matter of lack of accountability where people felt their rights were being violated and there just was too much power on that side of the scale. Um, and that its impact on the ground was pretty devastating to communities. And so I wanted to allow people the comfort to have that conversation to say, look, we put no badger bank account above the law. We need to examine how we are doing things. There must be accountability because you can have a society that is both safe, but also ensures that accountability for police. Um, uh, and that's something we were able to accomplish. Yeah, and I and you know it's that is obviously a touchy topic. Defunding the police has risen to be one of the uh, among the top three most controversial issues that sometimes people never get to see the facts about. They only respond with emotion. Abortion, right? That's one of the right. big ones. Um, you could talk about all of them, and I agree that we need to. If a police officer commits a crime, they need to be held accountable. What I don't agree with, and I know that is part of this big debate, is I don't want to stereotype all police. Of course. You know, I, I, I support the police, and I wonder how you view that aspect of this debate. Well, I think that um, it's not about whether you like police or not. I think they're public servants, um, and there's uh, patrol guides and things that govern their conduct, just like any other profession, just like any other civil servant. Uh, and... My work is impact litigation. I've changed the NYPD patrol guide. I meet with their top brass. We've worked on changing their policies um, because the focus is not on whether or not you like police. It's right. are we doing right by the people? Are the rights protected? Is the conduct appropriate? And how do we continue to make it better? And I think it was important to address the systemic racism, why the overwhelming majority of people of color are criminalized and incarcerated in our system. Uh, and that was something that I wanted to address. And it starts with policing because police are introduction before the district attorney's office comes into play. So for me, I'm someone that likes to get to the root cause. I don't do past jobs. I want to overhaul, see what are we doing wrong and then build the system that works. And I felt like those two things went hand in hand. And there are a lot of people who were pro-police that were on board with this message. There were um, officers that I've spoken to that say, yeah, we can do things better. We shouldn't be working on these things. We should be doing things better. We should do things this way, especially when it came time to conversations around training. So I, I think when you look at the micro level of how these issues were, um, were playing out in the race, uh, it was one that had support on both sides. Yeah, and I, and I think most police... Uh, you know, I, there are two ways that I, I, I uh, two issues that face them. One, they got the people out there that are just upset with police. They mm -hmm. stereotype police the way they stereotype us as Arabs. I, I, I sometimes I, I would use the analogy to say I feel like I'm a police officer the way people treat me as a Palestinian. They're mad at me because of something I had nothing to do with, and yet they're they're trying to punish me. And I think when we look at the issue in that context, especially you and me being Arab, we go through that all the time. I, I don't want to be stereotyped. Uh, and I don't want my people to be stereotyped. And there are a lot of police that think that's what's happening. But you were able to kind of bridge that then and communicate with police and get support from the police. I think a lot of police uh, don't want to see crime among their ranks. It's the worst thing that could possibly happen. You also had some other policies that I thought were interesting, taking a look at how severely 
we punish individuals uh, who are convicted of lesser crimes. Talk about that a little bit. Um, for me, it was important to not only talk about mass incarceration, but the mass criminalization, uh, particularly of people of color, because they make up over 75% of arrests and prosecution in our city. And it's essentially, you know, when somebody is arrested and prosecuted, they have a record forever. And whether or not these cases are resolved um, by trial or by fines and fees, we've now dictated the trajectory of this person's life. And I would even say their children and generations to come, because that is how permanent uh, a decision is when you prosecute, criminalize, incarcerate. Um, and over 70% of the Manhattan District Attorney Office's docket were low-level offenses that were resulting in these convictions that had fines and fees attached. So essentially relegated this office to being a debt collector. Um, and again, people had these uh, records attached to them and then sent back into the world and, okay, go apply for a job, go try and buy a home, graduate school, uh, attempt to live in a, product, uh, a productive life, knowing that this record will now be an obstacle every time you try to do something right. And so it trapped people in this vicious cycle where they couldn't move up or, or even be among their peers uh, in society. Uh, and that cycle of bad decisions continued. And I wanted to examine that and understand, well, if we're arresting and prosecuting people for all these crimes, but the case is being resolved in these violations and it's all about fines and fees, why are we criminalizing people in the first place? Why are these things happening? Is there a better way to approach it? One, wrongful convictions, wrongful arrests, but then for those that aren't wrongful, how do we ensure preventative measures? How do we ensure rehabilitation beyond just slapping them on the wrist with a fine and fee and then never looking back until they come back into the system again. And, and we're talking about these nonviolent crimes, basically, right. correct? Because when it comes to violent crimes, I think we have to be tough, and there's a measured way to do it. You're in, you know, you're in the area. I'm just an observer, a reporter, a, you know, a columnist. That opinions come easy for me, and I'm sure that I've noticed that in today's world, where everybody is a blogger, everybody's a writer, everybody has an opinion. We assert those opinions; they get very emotional. Um, but I, your position on violent crime, how strong is that? Uh, do you want to see change? What's the issue with violent crime? So the first thing is uh, a lot of things can be considered violent crime, things that don't include victims, things that include objects. Um, if you're stealing an Amazon package from a lobby um, and you have a box cutter in your back pocket, that's considered a violent crime. Oh. And so for the public, the, the lay people who aren't involved in the criminal justice system, either by practice or otherwise, um, when you hear the word violent crime, you're thinking of the worst of the worst. And so <clears throat> your mind automatically blocks off alternatives to incarceration or anything worse than we have to do the worst possible thing back to teach a lesson. For me, it was important to break down what do we mean by violent crime? And we have to have a nuanced approach that addresses the, what actually happened, not our emotion of how big something could or could it be. Um, and so when you look at that, you can't apply the same rubric of punishment to everybody that falls under the violent crime category. The second thing was for me is when you prosecute, why? What is our goal? Is it just to put somebody in jail for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years and spend millions of dollars on that incarceration? 
or do we care about rehabilitation? What is the plan for re-entering society when someone is released? How have we supported the victim? Have we ensured that there's support there, that there's rehabilitation on that front? Um, and the answer is none of that exists. And we also need to create incentives for early release, right? If we're putting someone away for five, 10, 15 years, how are we sure that that rehabilitation happens? And so when you incentivize it by saying, if you can complete these programs, if you can show rehabilitation, there can be an opportunity for early release. And again, it's nuanced, right? So it's on a case by case basis, as opposed to this blanket policy that captures everybody in it, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the needs and wants of the victim, and regardless of its impact on the community as a whole. We only have a few more minutes left, Hani, and again, it's a pleasure to have you on this program. It really is nice to meet you. Uh, you ran in a phenomenal, phenomenally important race, and I think you did really well. Um, was it the, and again, I want to just go back to that aspect, was it lack, not enough money um, to reach voters? Was it Arab and Muslim? What was it that prevented you from winning? Well, you never know the exact reason. You can always use money in a race, especially a race like Manhattan, especially when you're up against billionaires. But I think, you know, although we didn't actually win the seat, I think we won in terms of the way we ran the campaign, the endorsements that we got, um, the inspiration that we were able um, to uh, extend to people to make them see something different uh, and, and policies that in other places maybe would not have played well, but in a place like Manhattan got us over 25,000 votes. Um, and to me, uh, that's a win. So we've paved the way um, and whatever comes next, I think is going to be good for Manhattan, good for New York City and politics for our country as a whole. And I'm gonna ask uh, before we say thank you for joining us, what's your next race gonna be? Because once you're in, you will never be out. So we know you're going to run for something. What is it going to be? Congress, Senate, President. <laughs> you know, right now uh, I'm, I'm back to doing my first love, which is civil rights work. Um, you know, getting back to a lot of policy changes and things that need to be done on the ground. So that's where my focus is. But my eye is always on politics, making sure that whoever's running for whatever has the interest of the people at heart. So I can't get you to announce for Congress yet, but I'm going to keep pushing. But uh, let me ask you before I let you go, another thought that just came to my head. Um, civil rights, how bad, how good has it been on Arab Americans as we round the corner to September 11th? Is it getting better? Has it gotten worse? Uh, just give us a little capsule on what you think has happened to us. Um, it's gotten a little bit better. We've had to undo a lot of damaging policies over the last 20 years, and there's been an amazing unification between advocates, organizers, civil rights attorneys, um, uh, and organizations on the ground to undo those policies. But the remnants, the stereotypes, um, and the readiness to go back to those dark days still exist. Um, and I think that's what we, uh, that's what we'll always be fighting against is making sure we don't fall back into those dark times. And when there are crises and tra crises and tragedies that happen, we don't all of a sudden default to stripping civil liberties. All right. My guest, Tahani Abushi. Tahani, thank you so much for joining us. She ran in the race for New York uh, Manhattan District Attorney in June 2021. She came in third, but that's a bronze medal in terms of our Olympic uh, uh, mindset today, and it was quite an achievement. Tani, I hope 
we can bring you back on again to talk about some of the issues in the future. I really enjoyed talking with you and learning more about you. Of course. Thank you so much for having me, Ray. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. I'm Ray Hanania here at the Ray Hanania Show. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk with Paul Salem of the Middle East Institute about the uh, trauma in Lebanon and Beirut and just see what's going on over there. Tahani, you have a nice time. We'll be right back, everybody, right after these messages. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. Imagine you're on a train track. Somewhere miles away, a train is headed your way can't see it yet, but it's coming, slowly but surely. If you have prediabetes or you're at risk for type 2 diabetes, you may be on the wrong track, and diabetes could be heading your way. Bit by bit, the danger is getting closer and closer. So should you stay on the track you're on now or move to make a change and reduce your risk? If you have prediabetes or you're at risk for type 2 diabetes, you may qualify for the National Diabetes Prevention Program in your local community. This one-year program could be the ongoing support you need to put you on the right track. Not only did participants lose weight, they cut their risk of type 2 diabetes in half. Ready to get on board for a healthier future? Learn more about the National Diabetes Prevention Program and what else you can do to manage and prevent diabetes at michigan.gov diabetes. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. New Dawn Academy provides your kids with a curriculum that's rich in science, technology, engineering, and math. We want students to really experience what problem solving looks like. What does it mean to build things together? And really working on those analytical skills is what makes New Dawn Academy's program very unique. This school will certainly provide them with academic excellence, but also state-of-the-art buildings and inviting to students. Are your hands feeling numb? Do you feel pain opening up a jar, turning a key? Are you noticing that your elbow and your shoulder are becoming stiff? Or were you recently injured in your arm? Hello, I'm Dr. Albajit Katranji, and at the Katranji Hand Center, which just recently opened down the street from the Somerset Mall, we can provide you with the latest in hand, wrist, elbow, and shoulder care. Visit us at www.katranjihandcenter.com to learn the latest techniques that we have to offer you, and I look forward to taking care of you. Visit us in Troy at 1565 West Big Beaver Road, Building F. Or call Katranji Hand Center for an appointment at 248-869-4263. That's 248-869-4263. The U.S. Arab Radio Network is proud to offer the Ray Hanania Show with veteran journalist Ray Hanania, the U.S. correspondent for the Arab News newspaper. U.S. Arab Radio broadcasts content Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. on WNZK AM 690 in Detroit, WDMV 700 in Washington, D.C., and simulcast through stations around the country. Programs will rerun from 5 till 6 p.m. Visit us on Facebook at U.S. Arab Radio, and we're also streaming live on facebook.com forward slash Arab News. 
And welcome back to the Ray Hanania Show. This is segment two, and we're going to be speaking with Paul Salem of the Middle East Institute about the continuing turmoil in Lebanon. Uh, Paul Salem was named president of the Middle East Institute in 2018. Uh, prior to joining the MEI, uh, uh, Salem served as the founding director of the Carnegie Middle East Center in Beirut, Lebanon, previously served as direct as general director of the Ferris Foundation. And from 1989 to 1999, he taught at the American University of Beirut and founded and directed the Lebanese Center for Policy Studies. Paul, welcome to our radio show this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ray. Good morning and good morning to everybody uh, following your lovely show. I, you must have uh, taught with some of my cousins over there. I had two relatives over at the American University of Beirut, Jack and Mary Hanania. You ever run into them? Uh, I think I did. Which departments were they in? Uh, I, what do I know? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> been, been a long time, yes. There are not a lot of Hananias in the world, but uh, we are a nice, narrow group of uh, good people. But uh, listen, you have a great background, and I thought you'd be perfect to uh, talk to us and help us understand. One year ago today, I think it was, there was that massive explosion at a warehouse at Beirut's port. It took the lives of, you know, more than 214 people. Um, no repairs, no answers. Human Rights Watch is pointing a finger at government corruption. The government's been in turmoil. Saeed Hariri couldn't form a government. We got a new guy who's still struggling. What the heck is going on in Lebanon? Uh, indeed, it's a terrible time in Lebanon. I actually was there yesterday. I, I just flew back from the country. Uh, and it's the one-year uh, anniversary of that explosion on August 4. There are ongoing protests right now in Beirut, uh, leading up to the 6 o'clock p.m. hour where the blast took place uh, a year ago. Uh, that blast came in the midst of a uh, complete economic, banking, monetary, finance meltdown. Also came in the midst of a political uprising that had started uh, in October 2019, so about a year before. Uh, the blast itself is a combination, I think, of two dysfunctions. One is large-scale corruption and, and uh, unaccountability of a government oligarchy that's been in power uh, without being held accountable for this or any, any other set of crimes. And the other dynamic is the existence of an independent uh, armed uh, group, Hezbollah, in the country, which operates its own security and defense operations uh, in coordination with Tehran and Iran. Uh, those explosives or that nitrate, which can be used either for fertilizer or explosives, uh, had been in the port for a long time. Uh, Hezbollah itself had a big presence uh, in the port, and it's possible that those uh, materials were being used possibly in Syria. Uh, it's uh, Right now, Lebanon is going through one of the worst uh, periods in its modern history. Uh, as you said, uh, there are attempts to form a government. We can get into that. Again, don't seem to be going anywhere. And the country is supposed to face parliamentary and presidential elections next year. We don't even know if they will happen. Is it a case where there's just so much bad news, it's hard to focus on something? I remember when the explosion came up, uh, the first suspicion was, well, this has to have been something related to Hezbollah. It's like an or a government in a government. Um, how do you run a country with two powerful forces 
that you know not necessarily working together in government uh, what do we know about that aspect of it what hezbollah's role or is it still rumor and conjecture at this point well the government uh, and hezbollah behind them because hezbollah dominates uh, the government, uh, its president is their ally or their client. Uh, the current uh, care caretaker prime minister is their ally or client. The speaker of parliament is as well. Uh, and the government uh, has prevented a, a serious investigation. Uh, nobody from the government has uh, taken any accountability or responsibility. Uh, although all the documentation shows that they knew and they've known it uh, for years, uh, but there has not been an investigation to get beyond conjecture and get to real uh, evidence. Why, why can't there be like a uh, an independent investigation by somebody? Because when the people that are responsible, and I, and I think a lot of people feel the government is responsible, whether it was a Hezbollah, Hezbollah arms storage area or not, whether it was corruption or not, they're blocking it. Isn't there some way to get past that so that we could actually find out? I, I hate to see this turn into another uh, Rafiq Kariri issue where we don't know what happened to him. I mean, we knew what happened to him, but we never really learned what really caused his you know, killing until like seven, eight years after the fact. Is it going to take eight years to find out what happened a year ago, do you think? Uh well, in the case of the Hariri assassination, there was an international investigation. They did find out who did it, at least allegedly by the you know evidence uh, in the uh, in the court, and it didn't go anywhere because uh, Hezbollah, who was some of its agents were involved, uh, impl uh, implicated, refused to cooperate, refused to give uh, any of their people up, and it really got nowhere. Uh, a lot of people feel certainly that there needs to be an, an independent international investigation that typically requires a UN Security Council uh, resolution. And uh, currently, Russia and probably China would block any uh, any such action in, from the UN Security Council. And the, the Lebanese themselves, uh, you know, because of how the Hariri investigation ended up sort of not doing anything, they don't right. set great hopes by that. They are set on uh, keeping up the pressure on the political class. They hope for elections uh, in, in the spring in order to make some electoral difference. But I must tell you, Ray, there's a lot of uh, despair. I mean, Hezbollah is there uh, through force of arms. And no matter how many elections or how many protests you hold, we saw how fiercely they fought in Syria with Iran uh, to defend an Assad regime. People have no illusions that they will go away because of uh, protest or an election. And until you have real sovereignty uh, in a country, you, you really can't begin building uh, proper governance. Yeah, I mean, some critics, I've heard them say that uh, that this is Hezbollah-occupied Lebanon, the way they talk about Israeli-occupied Palestine. You know, it's almost impossible to deal with Hezbollah. They, they have the upper hand. They decide everything. They have the backing of Iran. Uh, it almost seems hopeless, uh, even just to get to the facts, let alone just to bring regime change, eliminate corruption, and just give people the the representation they deserve. Uh, well, I wouldn't go that far. I would certainly say that Hezbollah, as an armed force, is there by force, uh, and there's very little that you know unarmed citizens can do about it. But they do not, uh, you know, they currently dominate. 
the government, uh, but a lot of that is, or some of that is through politics, that it so happens that a major party in the uh, sort of a majority Christian party, the, the Aounist uh, movement, chose to ally itself uh, with Hezbollah for its own self-regarding political reasons, uh, that was a choice. Uh, and uh, so a lot of, you know, that group went along with Hezbollah, was a choice. Uh, Saad al-Hariri at one point tried to resist them. His father tried to resist. He was killed. Uh, he's had his own struggles trying to remain in power in Lebanon. He was rejected by the Saudis. He kind of also made a bit of an accommodation uh, with Hezbollah. I think what we're looking at now in this public protest movement uh, indicates or you know, should lead to uh, a, 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 a limited change within the country, that it's not the case that everybody has to accept uh, Hezbollah's power, has to be allied with it. Those were political choices. I think some of those will change over the next year. Hezbollah will remain, but I think its current phase of uh, pretty complete dominance might might decline uh, in a limited way, but it will remain a, an obstacle to real state building. We're on the line with uh, Paul Salem, uh, president of the Middle East Institute, um, and uh, we're talking about Lebanon. Paul, we're going to take a quick uh, ad break, if you don't mind. When we come back, um, maybe you can help us understand what needs to be done. What do we sure. have to see? What are the steps that need to be taken to change this? Because I, and again, I'm only using the Rafiq Kariri, you know, tragedy as an example of how uncertainty went on forever for so many years. And you're correct that uh, they did point fingers pretty early. We knew who did it, but nothing happened with that. I'm Ray Hanania here at WNZK AM 690 Radio in Detroit and WDMV AM 700 Radio in Washington, D.C. We're broadcasting live on the U.S. Arab Radio Network at ArabRadio.us and at Arab News Newspaper, which, by the way, if you look up the paper, they have a number of great stories delving deep into the uh, tragedy and turmoil and challenges that Lebanon faces. Um, Lebanon is such an important country. You want to see that change. We're at Facebook.com slash Arab News. I'm Ray Hanania. We're going to take our final break. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Paul Salem of the Middle East Institute. We'll be right back right after these messages. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. Ziad Brand, quality products from our family to yours. Ziad Brothers Importing offers the finest quality products, including brands like Sultan, Kraft, Nestle, Hook, Rico Picon, Donna, and many more. Ask your retailer to carry these fine products because you deserve the very best. For more information, visit our website at www.ziad.com. That's www.ziad.com. Ziad, quality products from our family to yours. 
When it comes to reproductive medicine, IVF Michigan Fertility Centers are the recognized leaders. With locations in Bloomfield Hills and five other cities in Michigan and Ohio, IVF has experts in all aspects of the field. As a founding member of IVF Michigan Fertility Centers, Dr. Nicholas Shama is one of the leading reproductive endocrinologists in Michigan and Ohio. Dr. Shama has performed over 10,000 IVF cases and has helped thousands of couples fulfill their dreams of parenthood. American board certified in both obstetrics and gynecology and reproductive endocrinology and infertility, Dr. Nicholas Shama is a very caring, compassionate, expert physician that understands not only the medical but also the emotional toil of infertility on his patients. When it's time, get personalized care from Dr. Nicholas Shama at IVF Michigan Fertility Centers in Michigan and Ohio. Call toll-free 855-952-9600, 855-952-9600. Get ready for an amazing experience at Ishtar Restaurant on 15 Mile Road in Sterling Heights. Enjoy excellent hospitality from owners Ali al-Baghdadi and Fatty Bonham serving the best in Mediterranean food. Try Chef Ali al-Baghdadi's famous shawarma, the best Iraqi grills and food, and the best Arabic and international dishes. Dine in our authentic atmosphere or take out. Call 586-698-2585 or check us out on Facebook. Ishtar Restaurant practices all CDC guidelines and is open every day 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. Have an amazing experience today at Ishtar Restaurant, 3625 15 Mile Road, Sterling Heights. The U.S. Arab Radio Network is proud to offer the Ray Hanania Show with veteran journalist Ray Hanania, the U.S. correspondent for the Arab News newspaper. U.S. Arab Radio broadcast content Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. on WNZK AM 690 in Detroit, WDMV 700 in Washington, D.C., and simulcast through stations around the country. Programs will rerun from 5 till 6 p.m. Visit us on Facebook at U.S. Arab Radio. And we're also streaming live on Facebook.com forward slash Arab News. 20 years ago, we had the tragedy of uh, September 11th, the terrorism uh, from a group of terrorists. Um, and it had a horrible impact on uh, Arab Americans in this country. I remember a woman came up to me and said, I can't believe you abandoned your Christian faith to become an Arab. That comment, after I gave a big speech to a uh, university group, um, pushed me into stand-up comedy, thinking, hey, if we can laugh together, we can live together. And then, of course, I bumped heads and locked horns with Jackie Mason at Zany's Comedy Club, and Jackie said he wouldn't allow me to open for him uh, on my show. <laughs> this is a whole week of my comedy shows, uh, and he was invited on as a guest. And uh, when he found out I was Palestinian, he refused to allow me to perform. Um, and he passed away, by the way, this past uh, week. And we offer our condolences to him and his family. It's just sad that we couldn't overcome that. And we also, uh, as we come up to the 20th anniversary of September 11th, the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee has a program on, that begins August 5th, the 12th, the 16th, and the 24th on national security, uh, explore, uh, exploring the rise of anti-Arab, anti-Muslim hate in the U.S. with Abid Ayyub. Um, on the 16th, I'll join uh, freelance writer Ali Yunus 
uh, to talk about the impact that it had on Arab American journalism. And then they end with a program on August 24th. We'll have all that information for you soon. Right now we're on the line and, uh, and video uh, broadcasting with Paul Salem. He's the president of the Middle East Institute. And we're talking about Lebanon and what can be done. Paul, again, well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. What needs to be done in Lebanon? What, what has to happen? in your opinion, to change things, to get answers, and to bring the country back on the right track? Well, I mean, it's going to be a long slog, but there are a number of levels. For, from the Lebanese people themselves, they've really risen up since, as I said, October 2019. They're out in protest today. They are a major force to determine at least a big part of the future of the country. Uh, I'm very close to a lot of the groups that are organizing there. Uh, these groups are trying to uh, mobilize, to unify, to coordinate, uh, and to prepare for the elections, the parliamentary elections that are supposed to take place in the spring of uh, 2022. So there's a lot that the Lebanese people need to reclaim. We mustn't forget that most of these politicians were recently elected to their positions just three years ago. So the people are not powerless. Uh, at a second level, the international community, uh, I must say, has really stepped up uh, as we speak. There is an international conference in support of the Lebanese people called for and headed by French President Macron, who was much more responsive to the needs of Lebanon than the Lebanese president. Uh, and the international community is uh, uh, extending or offering uh, serious economic support but requiring uh, that there be an effective government in place, that it undertake necessary reforms, including fighting corruption and a certain number of things, in order to release billions of dollars of help in coordination with the IMF. Uh, a year into this crisis, uh, the, uh, the, you know, the ruling politicians, if you want to call them that, have done nothing. Uh, they have not formed a government. They have not uh, done an investigation, so there's very little movement there. But the international community is very serious about this level. Secondly, uh, they've extended uh, necessary support, humanitarian support to the Lebanese people, uh, hundreds of thousands of which have descended into poverty. Poverty rates in Lebanon, which used to be around 10%, are now around 50%. And the international community is being very effective in helping the people. Uh, and thirdly, the international community has been supportive of the Lebanese army, uh, which remains sort of one of the last national institutions standing uh, and continues to maintain a very you know, precarious calm, a precarious stability uh, and preventing the country from completely uh, becoming uh, a fully failed state like a, like a Somalia or a Libya or even Lebanon back in the late 70s. Uh, so the international community is doing what it should. Uh, and it also has been imposing sanctions. Uh, the U.S. has a raft of sanctions. They started with uh, anti-terrorism, anti-Hezbollah sanctions that also included the Caesar Act, which is against the Assad regime in Syria. Uh, but they've also invoked the Magnitsky Act, which is against corruption. Um, the Lebanese population in particular wants more information, more pressure from the international community to get information about their politicians' corruption and to hold, help, the, help them hold their politicians accountable. Um, uh, it's, uh, the, you know, the last dynamic of this is uh, uh, the influence of Iran. Obviously, Iran calls the shots when it comes to Hezbollah and the bigger issues. 
and Iran uh, is locked in several battles with many of its neighbors in the Middle East. It's also locked in a confrontation and negotiation with the United States. Uh, and so it's been uh, uh, leveraging its uh, militia allies or clients in Lebanon, in Yemen, in Syria, and in Iraq, uh, A, to maintain sort of a, a dominance in the Arab world, uh, but also to put pressure on the United States and its allies. Uh, yeah, and, th and this topic obviously deserves so much more time. We only have about five minutes left, but it sounds like you're saying that, one, there could be a change if we see a change at the elections in the spring, correct? The second thing is these, these uh, uh, nations around the world that are coming to help Lebanon have put a condition on funding that they need to address the corruption. Um, but I've never heard of a corrupt government ever uncorrupting itself and especially with a country like Iran behind this government I just don't see anything changing am I being too pessimistic um, just looking back at the last 15 20 years um, or do you think that there's something that's going to make it different this time uh, I think there's some things that can be changed and some things that don't seem possible to change what what is changeable there are a number of politicians, including the current president and his party, which in the last elections got a majority, at least in the Christian seats. There are other politicians uh, who were recently elected who are deeply mired in corruption. Uh, it's noteworthy that in the last elections three years ago, most of the population you know, wasn't terribly focused on politics or corruption because the economy was kind of okay. Their lives were going forward. You know, they didn't seize the, the responsibility. I think that has changed. Uh, and I think if uh, elections are held in, in the spring and they might not they might not happen and the international community is helping uh, put pressure on Lebanon to make sure those do happen, a number of those politicians might be out of office. Uh, so I agree with you that they might not be able to uncorrupt themselves, but some of them some of them can be thrown out of thrown out of so office through the elections. So it's really kind of up to the people. They need to stand up, bring that, initiate that change in the upcoming elections. Uh, yeah, but I must warn that will be a limited change because you still have Hezbollah, you still have the force of arms. Uh, it's also important to note that next year we have presidential elections. Uh, the current president's term ends uh, and a new president, if properly chosen after a good election, uh, could at least tip the balance a little bit more in the you know, good governance direction. It won't be, Lebanon will remain crippled as long as there is an independent army, Hezbollah, that belongs to another country uh, that has its entire, you know, uh, security defense, political, uh, political game. But things need not be as bad as they are now. Anyway, listen, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. I hope that we can bring you back on again to talk about this issue. It's so important. Honestly, it deserves more than a half hour. I, this is a three-hour conversation that we've condensed, and you've really helped a lot uh, for us to really understand what some of the challenges are. Paul Salem is the president of the Middle East Institute, and I want to thank everybody for joining us out there. I want to thank Paul. We want to thank uh, Tahani Abushi for joining us in segment one. I'm Ray Anania. We're going to be back every Wednesday. Next week, we're going to have uh, uh, someone from the Middle East Institute help us understand actually what's happening in Yemen. So we will be back Wednesday at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, 
uh, and we hope you will join us. Paul, again, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you again. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you, Ray.